You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Children of Men. I can't really remember when I last had any hope, and I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet, the youngest person on Earth, was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours, and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Move along! Hello, Theo. Have it been? I'm sorry about the theatrics. Police have been a pain lately. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years. I need your help. Not for me, a girl. I need to get her to the coast, past security checkpoints. It's hard for me to look at you. He had your eyes. So why did you come to me? I trust you. Show him. Now you know what's at stake. We have to meet the boat. What is this boat? The human project of Centre Boat. The human project? It's the greatest minds in the world working for a new society. Your baby is the miracle the whole world has been waiting for. We will find a way to get you to the human project, I promise you. We're almost there, Keith. We're almost there. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Children of Men, and the story is as follows. When infertility threatens mankind with extinction and the last child boom has perished, a delusioned bureaucrat becomes the unlikely champion in the fight for survival of the Earth's population. He must face down his own demons and protect the planet's last remaining hope from danger. The film is starring Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Michael Caine, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Charlie Hunnam, and Claire Hope Ashley. It is directed and written by Alfonso Cuaron, co-written by Timothy J. Sexton, David Arada, Mark Fergus, and Hawk Osby. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Bianca Gardner. Hello. Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Dan Bayer. Pull my finger. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what a, a nice, nice note to start things off on because this is one bleak movie at first. It's incredible, though. Um, upon this most recent rewatch, I was very struck by um, how hopeful it is and how uplifting uh, it is, despite that level of bleakness, which is something that I think we're going to talk a lot about here, and is something also I think that. I, I felt like I really, really needed this movie right now, given everything that's happening during um, COVID-19, a.k.a. the coronavirus, and seeing how much the world around us right now is rapidly changing. Uh, this movie came out in 2006, if you can believe it, and it depicts a future that is 
taking place in 2027, which we're only seven years away from now. <laughs> and it's hauntingly scary mm-hmm. how much this movie uh, looks like it, like it, it eerily feels like we're there or almost there mm. or we're heading there pretty soon. And so you would think that with all of that going on, uh, this movie would be incredibly depressing to watch, but it's the exact opposite for me. I don't know uh, what you guys think, but I'm very, very curious to hear your thoughts about this film uh, from Alfonso Cuaron, a.k.a. the guy that when he wakes up every morning, he probably decides, yeah, I think I'll masterpiece today. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like to hear first, actually, from uh, Bianca, because A, ladies first. B, um, this movie takes place, actually, in um, you know, in, in Britain, uh, England, wh- whatever you want to uh, call it at this point. Uh, and as a result, uh, I figure, you know, you might have a unique perspective to uh, lend here. So let's start off with you. What do you think ultimately of Children of Men? Um, well, basically, that's how London is right now. It's just <laughs> falling apart. Um, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just love how this film, even like you said, it's like released 2006, but it feels so relevant now and it's not just the whole COVID-19 there are so many other issues that this film sort of uh, touches upon whether it's uh, migration crisis um, you know the rise of uh, fascism and and uh, you know oppressive government I, I just found it so um, it doesn't feel like it's aged at all in that respect I feel like they were so ahead of their time yeah, and it also sort of it's interesting because that if the film came out, you know, only a few years after 9/11, and it it's, it just shows how the world has, you know, in the early 20th 21st century, how we've become so um, broken apart. But like you say, Matt, there's a, like the hope is there at the, the you know the light is there at the end of the tunnel and I think it's such a wonderful optimistic ending that we have and uh, they do go through, uh, uh, the characters in the film go through such hell uh, and it never feels like uh, it stops it never seems to stop even when we do have moments where there are happier t- happier times um, there's always this constant feeling in the background that this some something's going to come after them it's you know they're going to have to start running again um i think the film is it's so interesting looking at it as uh you know being a being a brit myself because um there's so many little hints and moments and and um that they they sort of address in the film i think it's one of my favorite bit is when you see him with the uh london olympics um sweater on and it's just sort of like uh this moment of bringing the nation together but now um it's all sort of fallen apart and i think this is clive owen's best performance um i he's virtually fallen off the map now i don't know where he is but um this was just one of his best films i think and everybody in the film there's just people just popping up and you're like oh it's michael kane oh it's julianne moore it's like um it's so wonderful that the 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 whole cast that they have everybody is so perfect and yeah it's just one of those films that i I think 
really does stand the test of time and I think we will be talking about it hopefully if we're all here in 20 years time uh, if not then uh you know we're talking about it now so yeah I was saving this review for 2027 but you know (laughs) (laughs) we might not get there but yeah I definitely I definitely think it's one of the best films to come out of the last decade oh yeah Definitely. I, I completely agree with you on that. Uh, let's kick it over now to Dan Baer. Dan Baer, uh, thoughts on Children of Men? Um, as with <laughs> seemingly every single one of these uh, retrospective podcasts, I missed this movie when it was originally released. But oh, wow. I, I had seen it since, but not in like years. So this was a – I had forgotten a lot of it weirdly. And watching it now, it's it's strange – how not just prescient it is in terms of like how the world has become, but also in terms of just filmmaking, there is so much there that has become uh, more commonplace since this movie came out. Like a lot of those uh, one take or quote unquote one take um, long scenes, which were, you know, stitched together through uh visual effects and a lot of the um, even the, um, the the dark tone of the movie I mean that was sort of a year or two ahead of its time at least in terms of like you know movies that uh, got mainstream acceptance and Academy Awards love um, and uh, it it's so stunning I I was just you know sitting on my couch watching it and just for half of it, I was crawled into the fetal position. So worried for the characters and what was going to happen to the world and these specific people. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get over it. I mean, it's, it could be very easy to make someone feel that way when, you know, you're talking about a pregnant woman and her baby in danger but the movie rarely feels easy or simple it feels very complicated and very difficult um and it really puts you right in the middle of 2027 london with the production design the cinematography the sound work it it's all incredible it's a really visceral experience that it needs to be in order to get its point across yeah i definitely think that there is a level of immersion into this world uh brought about by all the technicals that you mentioned um that is just so incredibly precise and detailed and just filled to the brim uh with so many little nuggets um even in the dialogue too where i remember uh first time watching it and thinking to myself like I don't really understand what they're saying with the whole shanty, shanty, shanty thing. And I was like, (laughs) I need to do some like reading into this, I guess. Um, And and the movie is just so dense in that regard, not just in terms of uh, its writing, but also, like I said, in the world building as well. Uh, Josh, thoughts on Children of Men? Uh, Well, first, I kind of want to set up where I sort of was going into this review, because basically I saw this movie when it first came out, but... That was in like late 2006. I was 16 and I liked it 
at the time, but I didn't really love it. And I just sort of walked away from it feeling like that was good, but I wasn't totally into it. And over the years, I've heard people talk about how it's like a masterpiece and it's so wonderful. And I thought, well, maybe I just wasn't in the right headspace. I wasn't mature enough to really understand it. And I had been meaning to watch it again, but just hadn't. And when this review came up, I was very grateful because it gave me a good excuse to revisit this movie that I really wanted to watch again with a new perspective. And, you know, I got to tell you that coming into it now, almost fresh, because I hadn't seen it in well over a decade, um, my opinion is basically the same. Ah. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. Mm. Um, I think that there's a lot of good things in this movie for sure. And a lot of that is due to the technical elements and especially what Quran is able to do with texturing this world. But I find that my biggest issue with it is I just actually don't feel like it is a world that is quite that fleshed out. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff, particularly within the motivations of the characters within the story that I'm sort of get lost in. And I don't feel like there's very clear goals for people. And while there are sequences that I think are very interesting and, and get me invested just by the filmmaking, I sort of feel like the core of the actual story in terms of what the stakes are for people and what the goals are for these characters, that gets kind of muddled for me and it prevents me from really falling in love with it. So overall, I like the movie. I think there's many good things about it, but it kind of misses something in the center that pushes it over the edge for me. See, I find that very interesting because on this most recent rewatch, the thing that I was actually struck by, um, Bianca, you said before, this is one of Clive Owen's uh, best performances, if not his best. And while I would definitely argue it is one of his best, I don't know if it's his best best. I think a large reason why I was so into the movie this time around is because of its economical uh, storytelling. The film is less than two hours long which in itself feels like a miracle considering how dense everything does feel uh, within the world building. But the character motivations for Theo, I think, are incredibly simple and are illustrated uh, very, very well. Um, you take the very uh, opening uh, scene of the film where he's in the coffee shop and everybody is glued to the death of uh, Diego Ricardo and the news that the youngest person in the world has uh, passed away. And... He doesn't care. He's not paying attention to the news. He just wants to get his coffee. He gets out of there. You know, the coffee shop then gets uh, bombed. <laughs> so it's like, you know, he's kind of lucky, I guess, in that sense. But this is clearly a guy who is so disconnected, doesn't really feel anything. And he once was this political activist that had a cause um, that he believed in something. And the movie, I think, does a really good job of just showing you that this is a guy who has lost his way, and then he finds um, a cause that is worth fighting for all over again, but not in a typical action hero sort of a way. He's really playing just an everyman uh, who is kind of caught up in extraordinary events. Yeah, I think as well, the wonderful way it's illustrated is the fact that he keeps losing his shoes. Yes, um, which is like straight from Die Hard, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think it's obviously a nod to that, but I think as well, it's it's like he has to lose um, something that he has to become grounded uh, and, you know, feel pain uh, and in order to 
like as he's going on he he loses more and more of his own belongings you know his watch gets taken he used he, you know he uses his drink in order to help you know um sterilize his hands mm-hmm. in order to give birth i think it's it's interesting that he his journey is shown by um his stuff of his, his being taken away from him and I, I know, and he's rewarded by getting a pair of trainers. And what's very interesting about that too, Bianca, I want to just illustrate because another thing I felt while watching it this time around is that not only is the character of Theo being stripped away piece by piece until he's left with um, absolutely nothing by the end and ultimately um, his life uh, is given to this cause, but... I also felt that way about all the other characters in the Mm. movie as well, in the sense that this movie kind of starts off with uh, Julianne Moore, Chiwetel Ejiofor, and um, you have like all these other side characters like Michael Caine and stuff. And little by little, everyone just keeps dying, essentially. And they're all dying for an ideal uh, or a a belief, um, this idea of, um, as the Michael Caine character uh, talks about at one point in the film, about faith and chance. And how the two were always in collision with one another. And I just find it very interesting because that's like the bleakness, right? That everybody seems to be just dropping off like flies piece by piece as the movie continuously progresses towards its end game goal. Um, so for the movie to end and on a hopeful note that all these lives that were given, um, you want to believe that it's real. We don't know if it's real, but the hope that it could be potentially real is something that, um, you know, I think is inspiring when the movie is over. And it's something that we can then, like, take with us into the real world then. Yeah, and and I agree with that kind of concept that the movie wants to work with. I think just for me, the specifics of it are where I start to kind of have issues with. Because, like, for, for instance, I, I think this whole thing, the, the kind of plot of the movie, essentially, that is about protecting this... Uh, this young woman who's about to give birth and and why this baby is so important. I don't ever think the movie like really defines specifically why it's important to these groups and the, and these causes. And, and I get that the baby is like this symbol of hope. And I think there's a particular scene where it really emphasizes that, but in terms of like setting up the mechanics of why people are doing these things, I feel like I get a little lost in those motivations for me. And because of that, It just sort of feels like we're watching very impressive sequences, but all moving to something that I don't really fully connect with. Well, like, don't they have the one scene in the house where they talk about Mm. uh, the baby being used for political uh, power by the government? And I I think that scene is probably the only scene in the entire film where um, they do outwardly talk about what the baby could potentially represent to different groups of people. Yeah, and they specifically talk about it for the government, which that to me is very clear, and it's good. They don't even linger on it that much. But then you get into like these resistance groups, and it's like, okay, well, what what's the baby gonna do for the resistance, and what like are they gonna use it for the same political purposes? And I don't need to get into like total specifics. I don't need the movie to go into a total deep dive, but I need to have like some kind of understanding about what people are fighting for, especially if there's infighting within this group. Well, I think the world has gone so far at this point that people don't even know anymore Mm. uh, what it is that they're fighting for. I I think a lot about like COVID-19 and how we're in the early stages of this and there is no hope right now because there is no vaccine. We're all just trying to contend uh, with trying to flatten the curve, right? And 
I keep thinking to myself, if this goes on for months and months and months, I do eventually think that some people will get stir crazy and you are going to start seeing um, some interesting developments in human behavior as a result of that. And like I said, very, very early onset stages uh, and nothing as extreme as what's depicted in Children of Men. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's interesting how the vaccine for COVID-19, in a way, I think is like represented um, is represented as like the uh, the birth of the child and children of mm. men, and mm. it's gonna. It, I think there's like a very interesting parallel a little bit to today's society. And like I said, we're not there yet, <laughs> and hopefully we never get do get there. But I could see a world where uh, there's there are people, and I'm talking about in our world today, that because of this pandemic, because of uh, there, there could be like a loss of order, there could be chaos that could uh, mm-hmm. come as a result of this. And eventually, if it goes on for too long, hypothetically speaking, let's say it goes on for years and years and years, eventually that just becomes the new norm and you completely forgot why you were even, you know, why, why, what, what even brought you to the dance in the first place? You know what I mean? Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, God. That's <laughs> a lot. Um, I, I gotta say, like, I kind of agree with Josh a little um, in that, like, the, it, particularly, there's one scene near the middle of the movie where Clive Owen is sort of sneaking around the the uh, safe house where they all are with the resistance group. And it, I mean, it's great sound work in that we sort of hear what the resistance group is talking in, about in the background and, you know, through windows and walls and all that. But because of that great sound work, it's really difficult to hear what all of what they're saying. And that's actually what they're saying is a really big plot point. Yeah. And I was able to piece it together as the movie went on, but I still felt like there was something that I was missing. And one of the things that I was missing was like, was, you know, what is this group going to do with, um, keys baby. And, it, it wasn't clear what their plan was or why this was their plan as opposed to getting them to the human project. And well, do you know it now? No. Uh, <laughs> We're also like, what I, is still the really human project? Like, well, I, I think almost... that is that part. I think is supposed to be intentionally like no one really knows. Yeah. Yes. Exactly yeah. It is and what exactly they do, but it's important. Like. I mean, the human project is basically the MacGuffin of the movie. I mean, I look at it almost in a religious sense, um, to be honest with you, like almost like eternal salvation. And like, do you actually believe in God and religion and all of that? And it goes back to faith once again. (laughs) I do feel like that works thematically. I think the problem is that it seems like everything is treated with such an opaque lens, which I understand to a point, but for me, I kind of feel like in order to have really strong storytelling, you still need some kind of at least like clear goals for your characters, even if what they're going to may not be completely defined. I still need to feel like I'm in their headspace, like I understand what is driving them. And I think keeping all of those motivations so muddled really kind of prevents me from fully getting into their storylines, particularly with the character of Key, who her entire character is a MacGuffin. It's like we've, I feel like we get nothing about her. And I, for such a centerpiece to the entire story, I do feel like that's a pretty big problem for me where 
character I know little to nothing about such an important character to this story. Yeah, it, it, the fact that Key has basically no character outside of pregnant damsel in distress is yeah. kind of frustrating. <laughs> but at the same time, like I, I get Theo's motivations, and I think those are the most important as far as the the plot and themes of the movies are concerned. Um. But when you have like when the antagonists of the film and everyone else outside of your main character is so poorly defined or murky, it it makes it difficult. So, I mean, sure, the movie is like, you know, you know, race to the finish line kind of thing, like, you know, who's who's going to survive and just fight for survival. But even still, when it's the movie is so much about politics it would help if we understood the politics and motivations a bit more. See, I, I, I get what you guys are saying. I, I do get it, but I, I don't think that it is hard to make out exactly what those motivations are. I think it is all there. Um, I, I do agree with, with you, Dan, in the sense that stylistically, that scene where he's walking around the safe house and uh, we do hear Chu would tell Edgy of Four's like, plan that they um, intentionally uh, killed uh, Julian and it's all because they're going to use this baby once again uh, for the uprising, essentially, because they have their own motivations in terms of what they're looking for as a political terrorist group. I, I like I get all of that. I understand, though, that it is murky. But I but I a part of me looks at it also from that standpoint of do we really need to get lost in the minutia of everything that's happening and can we just focus on what the ultimate goal is and the goal is just protecting this baby at all costs i think it's interesting in terms of like everybody is you know we're discussing all the politics of the the movie and and the the terrorist um group and we're getting so caught up in that and it's kind of what happens in the movie they get so caught up in the politics that they don't actually think about the bigger picture which mm. is which is the baby and is this idea of um you know something that should bring people together like you know talk about like covid-19 we should all be working together to be uh, you know helping those who are vulnerable and instead we're having people fighting over you know toilet paper i mean it's, it's craziness <laughs> but that's kind of like what happens in children of men is that people are so caught up with their own you know uh what they can do with, with their political beliefs and how they can gain from this this child uh from this situation that they've almost forgotten what it is that they they want at the end what is their end goal um so i i personally yeah i can see where you know, Josh and Dan, you, where you're coming from, but um, for me, the story is it is less about all the the, the political backstory uh, aspects of the film, and more about uh, you know learning empathy again, learning to to love one another again. I think it's actually all intentional. If, mm. if I had to be so bold to proclaim, I don't see it so much as a fault of the movie. I actually think it's a deliberate choice uh, by the screenwriters and by Quaron to have us talk about this very theme. And what I will, I actually will say this, that 
um, that that theme of like finding hope within the darkness, it does really get represented in my favorite scene of the film, which is uh, when the finding all ceases and everybody just mm-hmm. looks at the baby. And I find oh, yeah. that actually is my favorite scene of the entire movie. And I love it because it really condenses everything that thematically should be there with the film um, just so beautifully rendered in that moment and i find it so incredibly moving and to me that's it's great and i love that scene but i also do think that yes i think the movie is trying to keep some of the political stuff in the background because it does help with that theme but i think what it sacrifices is world building i think it sacrifices some of the more um details that help me feel like this world is fully developed for me. And when I don't have that, that's that's something for me that, especially when it comes to science fiction movies, I really kind of feed off of. I feed off of like the tiny little details that make the world feel so much more real. And I just feel like the movie, for the most part, is missing that. It does have this theme that feels very relevant, and and there are times where I think it really does a good job of exploring that. But in terms of fitting it within a story that overall feels very textured and detailed, that's where I feel like it kind of misses some things for me. See, like, and I think that all of the world building is in the production design of this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it is, but I think it is only in the production design. That's my problem, though. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, okay. I I, I, I do, I, okay, I get you. But for me, like, I, I look at it as almost like an invitation to do a little bit more research outside of the movie. It's part of the reason, too, why I feel like every time I watch it, um, I find something new within the movie because the movie doesn't spell things out for us. And I think, once again, that comes down to the fact that it's such a lean movie in terms of its runtime, the fact that it's an hour and 49 minutes uh, long, less than two hours. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it was, uh, I think, a little bit over two hours long, I think then maybe that would have been time that could have been given to um, fill those gaps that you're um, discussing here, Josh, most likely. But I I think this is all – I really do believe this is all deliberate because I think that this is a movie that warrants examination. Because the issues that it are bringing up thematically, as we talked about before, are so important and continue to be so relevant. And it could be deliberate. Doesn't mean I have to like it. Like, no, 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 no. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> we never know what's caused, you know, uh, women to to become uh, no, no one knows fertile. No. And I, I just, I find it. That's what I find most interesting about the film is that there isn't that there isn't answers. And I, I, I find it so. It's just the fact that it, it, that's what happens in reality. We don't know where certain things come from. We don't know whether COVID nineteen has come from, uh, you know, this this um, fish market or wherever it came from. Um, we don't have a cure at this stage. We don't have a vaccine. And I, I think that's what I like about the film is this this thing is that we can come to our own conclusions about how things have happened, how, um, you know, uh, the, uh, and, and what we would do. I mean, would it, if we did stop having ch- children, would it really go to that stage where we become this fractured society or would we come together? Um, it's so, as a, um, as a dystopian film, that's what I, I like. I find it frustrating when I have too much exposition you know, where you just have like, you know, before you, the film's even started, you're getting a whole 
uh, wall of text saying, you know, in the year 2017, yeah. blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And I find, you know, for some people, I guess that's what they enjoy. They need to, you know, they do like to have it all sort of there so they can feel like they're immersed in the world. But for me, it takes me out of the world. And I can't really connect with the story because it feels like, you know, it's just being, I like my own imagination to come into play and fill in the gaps for me, if that makes sense. Sure. No, I I get it. I think that's also the difference between mainstream blockbuster filmmaking and also to like artistic filmmaking um, from a movie such as this, because this movie does have a level of scale to it. And by all accounts, it's essentially an action film when you stop and think about it for a little bit. Um, But it's an action film that's made by an artistic director who's got a very, very clear vision for what he wants to achieve and is not making it for a mainstream audience. Um, it's it's the thinking man's action film. <laughs> Hence the, uh, you know, uh, the reference to Die Hard, like we said before, with the shoes. I think that that's all deliberate in that part, uh, in, that, in, in that point. So another thing, too, I, I want to mention here, I know, I know we talk about the technicals uh, a little bit, but I really, really do want to dive in a bit into the film's editing, its sound, production design, cinematography, really just have at it for a minute here. Uh, what elements uh, stood out to you guys? Um, I, I, I mean, I'll start off simply by saying once again about the production design. I find that whole sequence um, at Danny uh, Houston's <laughs> uh, apartment or whatever it is, that building with all the artwork to just be yeah. incredibly stunning. Um, and side note, uh, Danny Houston screaming Alex still scares the shit out of me every single time I watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the um, but the production design, I think, is so varied in this because it doesn't just extend to those beautiful um, modern uh, con- contemporary like art interiors. But it also it then goes to the exteriors and to pull off these incredibly long one-shot sequences where you figure you have the rummage buildings, the debris on the ground. Um, There's so much going on here that it's almost a miracle to me that this movie uh, did not get a production design nomination. But I think that, once again, it's the kind of work that is reserved nowadays for something like her, Parasite, um, in the sense that it was like very modern and ahead of its time, as we said before. I don't think the Academy was recognizing a film like this uh, for that kind of uh, award at that time. I, I thought the exact same thing, Matt. I think the production design is absolutely stunning. And I think that part of that is like, I mean, and part of it, of course, is like now we're in 2020, we're only seven years away from 2027. <laughs> and this feels very much like the world of today. You know, it, it feels like they got it pretty, pretty accurate. Um, but yeah, everything is so, you know, on the outside, it's so dingy and dirty and run down and in a way that makes sense and that feels mm-hmm. believable given the situation. Um, and like little things like how they do, you know, the um, neon lights for businesses and the ads, the way like billboards and advertisements are incorporated into the world. Um, and I, I really love um, – the first scene with Julianne Moore in the 
room that is entirely covered in newspapers. Mm-hmm. They had to make those newspapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, and, they, and then they walk out of that, and it's in this like great big dome-like structure. And yeah, I it's very, I I really love that scene, and it's very striking. And everything in Michael Caine's house, I absolutely love yeah (laughs) it's just like it's one of those things where like just through the production design you learn a lot about the world and you learn a lot about the characters who are inhabiting these specific spaces and that's my favorite kind of production design he's uh there's a quote from quaron uh when he was telling them about his vision for what he wanted the movie to look like Mm -hmm. he wanted it to be anti-blade runner yeah and Mm -hmm that I think comes across extremely well. And once again, like to kind of go back to something that Bianca said before, um, it grounds the movie in a realism that, that feels it, it, it's just close enough that it, it feels like it's really realistic, but also to just ever so slightly off that you could tell it's still a science fiction, you know, film yeah. at the end of the day. And I think it's interesting that um, it's this, the pollution that there is, the dirtiness of the the whole um, London look to it. I mean, it's it's kind of like, yeah, if there isn't going to be any more children and the human population is going to die within a hundred years or so, then you would imagine that people would just stop caring and you know just be uh, not caring about. Um, climate change or anything they'll just be doing whatever they want and throwing rubbish around and stuff so I fully believe that the the state of the world would get like that and I think it's interesting we see so much graffiti and there's that wonderful yeah. bit on the on the train it's like the last one to leave please turn out the lights and stuff mm. like that like that little bit of world building that there is and throughout the the, the film you see like the uprising um uh, you know on on walls and stuff like it's happening um so uh, it is it's really a great way to tell more about the world without having it sort of spoon-fed to you yeah i mean i, I certainly have my issues with some elements of this story but i have to say that I think most of those like little details that I really love in these types of films are really amplified in the production design. And I think it is really incredible work. It's the thing that really stood out to me the most in this uh, rewatch that I, that I did. And I really do think that in terms of setting up a world that, that feels really lived in and believable, I think for much of this film, a lot of that comes from the production design. And I do think it, uh, I do think that it's incredible work. Yeah, and I mean, it lends itself, obviously, then to Emmanuel Lubezki's camera work here because what he's photographing is just so highly illustrated. And I know a lot of people uh, talk all the time about the uh, long takes in the movie. There's three in particular, um, the sequence where Key gives birth, um, the car uh, sequence uh, the, uh, on the countryside road, and then um, at the very, very end in uh, Brexhill. And... Despite those three sequences, because at this point it's like, well, of course, Emmanuel Lebesky, <laughs> you know, yeah. of course you would, because uh, he's one of the all time great cinematographers. I, I, what I kind of came back to a little bit more this time around was the harsh lighting. 
mm-hmm. and how intense the sunlight and a- a- any like that scene where um, Theo uh, does get uh, captured, quote unquote, on the side of the road and brought to Julianne Moore and they take the bag off his head. Mm, Just that yeah. yellow light and yeah. how pronounced it is. Um, I was really, really struck this time around by how much. Um, Emmanuel Lebeski allowed light to come through the lens in this movie in a way that I feel like a lot of um, sci-fi films tend to highlight uh, shadows to create that um, Blade Runner, once again, noir-esque feel. Mm -hmm. And I think Children of Men is once again in its cinematography doing the anti-Blade Runner approach, uh, not just in production design, but then also too in terms of just its overall visual aesthetic. Yeah, and I also find it interesting that, at least for me, I think that the kind of quote-unquote simpler sequences are actually a lot more uh, interesting to me than the big spectacle long takes. Like, I, you know, you mentioned that scene where he gets captured by Julianne Moore, or even when they are first escaping uh, the the safe house with the cars. Like, I find, like, just those sequences and the way that they're shot to actually be a lot more riveting than when it gets to the big, you know, many minute long, long take towards the end of the film. And I think it just really speaks to Lubezki's ability to create these sequences that feel so energetic and feels so much like they have life in them, even if relatively little is happening. And I think it's a great skill that he brings to any project that he works on. And it's no wonder because he's the greatest. Yeah. (laughs) Handheld too. Yeah. I think as well, it's interesting that the camera lingers uh, um, on certain aspects as well. I think of um, the the bit where he gets off the train and it lingers on the people in the cages. Uh, It's it's like its own character. Like, you know, uh, it just suddenly stops for a bit and then just looks at something else. And then it's only a quick and then we're back to the main story. But I think it's really a a great way to sort of use the camera like that. It's interesting. It feels like instead of Theo being our you know, the POV character or the audience surrogate, the camera is almost Mm. that character, you know, it's showing us. And I think that's part of one of the reasons why, despite my issues with how the, the script goes about, um, with motivations and explaining a lot of the things that are happening instead of the things that have already happened. Cause I think that's fine. Um, but instead of that, like th- this is why the movie still works for me because we, we get so much of the story through just, you know, what we see. And I mean, like, God, I mean the people in cages and it's so weird because like, to me that feels almost like, okay, I get it. But at the same time, it especially now it feels like yeah, that's totally a thing that would happen. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. Although there is there's one thing related to the cinematography though that I don't like that actually Uh-oh. does bother me. Uh, here we it's, go. It's one it's one thing. Um, it's the blood that hap- that sprays onto the camera lens. Okay, I loved that. <laughs> okay, I know a lot of people do. A lot of people do. I don't like it, and the reason I don't like it is because. Up until that point, I am invested in watching Theo survive this barren landscape and and trying to get to Key to rescue her baby. But to me, the minute that blood appears, my mind immediately switches to a camera following Clive Owen on a movie set. 
it kind of just breaks the reality for me. And yeah. I get it that it doesn't – this is very specific and it probably doesn't bother most people. But for me, it really, really does like rip me out the fabric of the film. And it, fortunately, it's not a big moment, but – Especially because everything up until that point is I'm so invested in it. And then that moment happened and I was like, oh, yeah, that is a camera. And and it, and it does – I have to admit, it does bother me to the extent that it does kind of break the reality of the film for me a little bit. Yeah. I, I, I get that. I have two mindsets on this. One is – I agree with you, Josh, because it is a break in the immersion of the uh, reality of the story and such. I get that. I totally get it. It feels like almost it's like filmmaking 101 in the sense of like you don't want to ever do that to anyone. So on the other hand, the filmmaker sensibilities within myself uh, love being reminded that this is something that was actually done by humans, had to be choreographed like a dance and all of the planning that went into the sequence, um, I, I, I think it makes me think about the filmmaking itself. And I don't, once again, it's like something that like, I think that you're right or you're wrong, no matter what. Uh, there, uh, like, there is no right or wrong here. Um, if you like it, I think it can remind you once again that this is something that was made by human beings and there are happy accidents that happen on set all the time. And then if you, uh, you know, don't like it, I can completely respect that reasoning and understanding for it. I, I, I truly do. I don't think that either side is right or wrong in this instance. And it's something that I know that Quaron originally didn't want to keep it in the film, but Emmanuel Lebeski convinced him to leave it. And I would love to hear what his reasoning was behind that, because it, I'm sure it just wasn't like a oh, I like it. Let's leave it in. And Quran's like, yeah, sure. I'm sure that there was like some sort of a stylistic reasoning why he decided to leave it there. And I think it maybe does harken back to maybe we do want to remind people that this is a movie and people will watch in awe and wonder at how we pulled off these sequences. Yeah. I, but so can I, my, my thing, the reason why I liked it was that it was this reminder throughout that sequence that that people are actually dying that there was a huge mm. huge toll that all this fighting and war is happening and so often in movies and even in this movie up to that point like you know yes we see people killed but we really don't see the 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 thingness of it the you know like People, someone just dies, and okay, it's just this random person that dies. You know, I mean, aside from a, the major characters that die, it's just kind of like, oh, well, some other random person dead, whatever. But leaving that blood on the camera was, to me, a constant reminder: like there is literally death happening all around here, and the 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 human cost of this fucked up. <laughs> fighting over you know essentially nothing because yeah the human race is over anyway like it, it just it, it really got me on that level of like it it actually heightened the danger and the reality of it for me in a weird way sure yeah 
What do you guys think of uh, the sound work, uh, particularly the um, loud rigging noise that um, Theo hears after the bombing in the uh, coffee shop? And it actually comes back a couple of times yeah. in the movie. I-, I wish that I had seen this in a theater because uh, yeah. I can only imagine the sound work on this is just stunning and surround and all that stuff. And yeah, loud, big speakers. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible how Quaron uh, can do, you know, films like this gravity which is very much about stripping sound away and playing with the audio levels because they're in space and there is no sound and then you have something mm-hmm. like roma which has maybe the most complex sound work of any movie of that kind <laughs> um, because it, and it's interesting because like movies like like roma don't typically have that complex sound work <laughs> so I, I i love that he doesn't forget that sound is such an important element in his films and he finds very unique ways to incorporate them once again into the story. I, like this is the kind of stuff that I like. I eat up is when a filmmaker has their hands over every single element of production, and everything has a deliberate uh, decision behind it as far as just aiding the story. And I, I feel that way about very very few movies. I feel that way about like Parasite, for example, or Spike Jones's uh, Her, as I uh, met- mentioned earlier in this uh, podcast. And it's very, very rare that I do see a movie that feels that way. And Children of Men is one of them for me. Um, The other thing that I would like to uh, just mention here as well is the lack of a typical film score. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And instead, there is use of, I mean, there's a lot of music in this movie. A lot of different genres of music, too. Um, And I I believe the, the ending music, I think is also like not music that was made specifically for the film with the uh with the with the with the um woman uh singing i think that what or he i know that he went to a composer specifically oh okay he did um and had but i don't know if it was a pre-existing work that they put in or if it was newly composed i don't i don't remember Okay, well, I, I, either way, I, I think that that's once again another you know uh, yeah. deliberate choice on his part, and one that I think helps the movie uh, very well. Um, mm. And none of the uh, tracks in this ever distract me or like kind of pull me out of the movie, mm. which is nice. Yeah, it, it's an interesting way to create the world of a film and have that soundscape to have it be all just music and sounds that we're hearing in the world naturally that apparent that you know every once in a while sort of take over and become um diegetic non-diegetic and sort of cross that line um it's interesting i I do think that the like sound design work is very good in this film like most of quran's movies are i i do i do think that's really good i don't know if i completely agree about like this the musical pieces they feel very like I don't understand some of them at, at some points. Like there'll be a music track that plays, and I'm just thinking it kind of doesn't really go with what's happening. Or like, why are we listening to this version of Ruby Tuesday like three times? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's a minor thing, but I, I don't know. I think that the music doesn't really gel that well with the movie for me personally. Not enough to really break it, but it's that that's an element that I don't really get into so much with. The film. I think that the sound, the other sound design work is much better than the actual like musical pieces that the film employs. I mean, guys, we haven't even gotten to uh, Josh Parm's number one criticism of the movie, and that is that Charlie Hunnam doesn't take his shirt off. So. <laughs> <laughs> Missed opportunity. Well, you know, 
Charlie <laughs> Hunnam really basically Charlie unrecognizable. Uh, Josh is like, I would have bumped the grade up two points if Charlie Hunnam took his shirt off in this movie. <laughs> but but you know what? On the other hand, he killed Julianne Moore. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Dueling allegiances right there. <laughs> um, I want to highlight Michael Caine in this movie. A little bit. I I feel like he doesn't get uh, enough uh, credit. And, you know, a lot of the supporting roles in this are extremely short, uh, but they're all memorable to a certain extent. I feel like Julianne Moore um, is one that I I think out of everybody in the movie, I think that she actually probably gets the least to work with. And I do feel like she is sleepwalking a little bit through the role because it's just so thin and there's not much there. Um, but then you have guys like Michael Caine or um, Peter Mullen. My God, oh, who are oh so good. I love him so much. Oh my God. <laughs> Dear God, I just like I, I, I definitely remembered that whole uh, Sid referring to himself in the third person um, before I even plugged the movie in. And that just goes to show you when you have like really strong uh, character actors that are just bringing so, so much to these uh, tiny roles, no matter what they are, um, it can really, really help uh, to just make the whole experience that much better. And like, and like, he's not the person that I would think mm. to cast in that role ever. No. But, he's, oh my God, he's so good. And he's actually terrifying as, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, the, the, a real threat. I mean, everyone else, I've you know, the, the fishes and all that. I mean, yeah, so I believe that they're, you know, threatening but he's unhinged like oh it's so uh my heart was absolutely racing in that that scene where they're trying to escape him and uh try to get through that door he also has like one of the few laughs in the movie too when he's like uh let me see the fuji face sad fuji face (laughs) (laughs) that's good (laughs) maybe my favorite line reading in the whole film (laughs) Next to Michael Caine's reading of Pull My Finger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although, I have to say, I'm actually a little bit more mixed on Michael Caine in this film than a lot of other people are. And I don't think it's necessarily his performance. I just don't think Michael Caine is really well cast in this role. Like, he's obviously Michael Caine has a lot of screen presence and it's always fun to watch him. But I don't know, there's something that's like a disconnect of seeing him as like this ne'er-do-well political hippie I, I don't know there's just something about that that doesn't really connect in my mind and it, it definitely prevents me a little bit <laughs> and sure and sure it is i just don't think he's particularly an actor that can play against type i mean he's, <laughs> I mean, he's a good actor but like he, he michael kane is a very specific type of actor too yeah. and i get that it is going against what we normally see him as I don't know if he really fulfills that, but we do get a kick out of just watching him because he is Michael Caine. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fun to see him play against type. Does he do it? Does is it entirely successful? You know, maybe maybe not. The mileage will vary, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It works for it works for me. Uh, in this case, I think it's the long hair. I think the long hair is what does it. <laughs> <laughs> the long hair combined with the glasses. Alrighty. Um so what I want to do now, because there, there's so much to talk about with this movie. I mean, we could go on and on about uh, other explorations of the themes of this film. Uh, we could talk more about um, other technical elements, I'm sure. But at this point, I would like to probably just kick it over now to final thoughts. Um, anything that we didn't mention or anything that uh, you want to reiterate. So, uh, Bianca, we'll start off with you. Uh, final thoughts on Children and Men. Um, 
I just think it's really well done. Considering I don't know if anyone has read the book at all. Did you know it was even based on a book? Yeah, I think it came out like in the early 90s, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've read the book and you know when a film it actually exceeds the, the source material. Uh, this is a prime example of what you can t- do is with with a, an adaptation and make it better. And it's very rare for films to actually do that, I think. Um, and this is a, a perfect example of, you know, a, a filmmaker. I think, really, he is our generation's Kubrick. He's taken something and has managed to make it bigger than it actually is. And it's so good. And I really think that the fact that we're we're talking about it all these years later and it's still so relevant and it was so ahead of its time, um, it just goes to show how well crafted this film is. And I like, uh, you know, yes, there's problems with it, uh, but I, I think that's what's brilliant is that it's not this... Uh, well-polished, flawless piece of art. It does have these little rough pieces to it. And I, that's what I like. And I think there's so much that we can, uh, like you were saying, Matt, and you could go back and watch it and you pick up on more aspects of the movie. And I love that with films. I love when films do that. Yeah, no, it's probably like my favorite thing about a movie is um, when you revisit it, it's a little bit different than the last time you saw it. And uh, that's why I like spacing out my viewings of films. I remember I watched this particular movie multiple times uh, when it came out because I was uh, studying uh, production in college and uh, this movie was just like such a feat of like cinematography that I wanted to know like everything about how they shot this movie Uh, but I haven't watched it very much if not at all uh, since then and now uh, coming back this time around um, I saw it with like definitely different mature and relevant uh, like I said to uh, what's happening right now in our world eyes that it took on like a whole new meaning this time around all right, so let's hear from Josh Parham. Josh Parham, final thoughts on Children of Men. Uh, I think for me, it just comes down to wanting to reiterate that I like the movie. Like, I know that I've talked a lot about some of my issues with it, but I think overall it is a it is a good movie. And for what it's trying to do in terms of getting you invested in, in this story, I think there's a lot of things that it does really well, particularly from a directing and, and tech standpoint. And, and many of the performances, I think, are actually pretty good, too. I do just think that it is missing something for me to make it feel fully formed. And I'm not somebody that needs like a wall of text saying this is what happened leading up to this point. I'm not saying that I need that, but I do need something that makes it feel like it's more tactile to me when I'm actually in this world. And I understand that some of those are intentionally pulled back, but I think that those are storytelling decisions that you either really get into or you feel like there's something missing to that. And for me, I fall more on the latter. It doesn't make it a bad movie, but it keeps it from being a great one for me. But overall, it's still a movie that I think is well done and there's a lot to still recommend it. I just don't go necessarily into like the masterpiece territory that a lot of other people are in. Sure. No, I, I get it. I think your uh, reasoning is sound on this one, and I, I totally understand it. Uh, Bear, what about you? I actually think I've I've said all I need to say on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, um, the one question that I would pose to the group that 
we haven't really talked about is um, what do y'all think about the ending? And I'm including in the ending um, the soundtrack we hear as the credits start to roll. Ooh, mm. yeah. Because I was, I kind of liked the ending ending and then they start to roll the credits and they play this sound of children playing and I was like, <laughs> is that too far? Does that it's, really feel like it's a piece with the rest of the film that we just watched? I, I think it's like an echoing back to um, what came oh, before the movie. I don't think it's like to say that that that's the outcome is mm. you know one child led to tons of little chattering. Oh, see so, you now I, I think that's exactly what it is. Oh, I don't think it is because in my mind I don't I, I maybe that's the pessimist of me. I think <laughs> it's all going to end really badly, and I don't trust that ship at all. Uh, but maybe that's just goes to say a, a lot about who how I am as a person is a, a glass half empty kind of person. But <laughs> I, I seriously have my doubts. Maybe that's just as a, as a woman is that I I feel for her. I feel like what is you know the fact that it, the baby is is now a girl and what has she, like the expectations that she has. Mm. Like I feel for that child. Like I I think that it's going to not go well. But yeah, I, and I feel like the 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 soundtrack afterwards with the children playing is really creepy. I don't know. It's just eerie. I don't mm-hmm. think it's a. I think like that is really a weird way to end it. I don't like it at all. I'm like, oh, cr- creepy children, go away. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are all really great points um, about where your perspective is supposed to be at that moment. I think for me though, the ending kind of is like a meh for me. And I think it's mostly just because that's when so much the of that emotion is switched to her, to Key. And as I've said, I really didn't think Key was all that developed as a character. So I don't really get a really great like emotional catharsis one way or the other because mm. I don't really know that much about her and what she would like really be feeling in that moment, like whether she would have some doubts about what's happening. And I, I think for me, that's why the ending is like, yeah, I, I get that's where they were racing to, but it kind of didn't do that much for me. Yeah, it it's interesting because like, we don't know a lot about Key, and yet I'm so invested in the survival of her and her child by that point. Sure. That, like, and and I the the other thing that I guess I didn't say is that like the sequence where she gives birth is one of the yeah. most nerve wracking things oh, yeah. I have I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Very um, good. And <laughs> I just love how um, <laughs> how real the baby looks yeah for a cgi baby that's like one of the things uh that i feel like we didn't really touch upon is like the seamless visual effects work in the movie it's pretty insane (laughs) it really puts um some other lots of other like tv shows where they just give birth to a baby or like things like um not to call out names but american sniper um this could have you could have hired these people it would have been fine um but yeah like at the to get back to the ending um 
I'm, I'm so invested in their survival that I just let out this huge sigh of relief when the damn ship finally showed up because I was convinced that it wasn't coming. I was convinced that she was just, it was just going to end with her on that little rowboat in the ocean, just waiting and like, what is going to happen to this woman? But I think it's sort of a testament to how, how um, cynical and pessimistic and uh, bleak of a movie it is. And then to end on a note of hope like that, um, it, it, it's certainly a choice. I, I, I'm still sort of piecing together, like whether I like it or feel that it, it is the best possible ending for the movie or not. But, um, I, I think that it's done well, mostly. Yeah. Okay, well, um, you're all savages. Um, this movie's fantastic. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I understand where everybody's coming from with all these um, thoughts here. This all makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, I, I don't disagree, but I also don't agree at the same time. I just think that it's a movie that is uh, worth discussing at the end of the day. And I think that that's always the most fascinating thing about movies that are this incredibly dense sometimes is that they bring, a, uh, they bring about... Um, different interpretations, different feelings. And I think that's what great art is meant to do at the end of the day. So I'm very, very happy that we had this uh, conversation. And uh, one last thing I will uh, say that I like uh, very, very much about this movie is just the journey that the Theo character goes on. Even though I do recognize that the writing for pretty much all the characters um, can be a little thin and maybe a little bit too um, uh, archetype-based, it still does come together very nicely, especially when Key tells Theo at the end that she's going to name the baby uh, Dylan. Yeah. um, Yeah. And I I just think that everything coming full circle like that, and he dies peacefully, happy, and I just think it's a really, really good arc for that character all around. And like I said, I say character in quotes because, once again, he's supposed to be like an everyman. I don't consider like Theo to be a unique uh, cinematic character by any means but i think that that's um deliberate once again because it's supposed to be appealing to the universality of the film in the sense that uh we're all supposed to see ourselves in the theo character um and if you make yeah. them too defined and too unique then you do uh lose a bit of that so um grade i am giving it a 10 <laughs> um I actually, when I headed into this uh, second viewing, I knew it was already a 10. However, I remember uh, like when I first started watching it, thinking to myself, oh, this could potentially be a nine. And for all the reasons that Josh brought up before um, and other uh, criticisms that have been brought up during this review, there is justification for me to bump it down to a nine. But all the issues that people might have with the movie are things that I actually work to the film's um, betterment. And I think that the film actually is, once again, making these choices deliberately, and it is inspiring a great discussion amongst all of us, and I can never, ever fault it for that. So I will go with a 10. Bianca, where are you going with? Um, I'd probably say 9. But I I I love the film, but I I think, yeah, there's... 
some now that we've spoken about it, the issues. No, I feel like now that Josh has ruined it for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, never my intention. <laughs> no, but no, you brought up some really good points, and I think that's why it's a nine for me. Okay. All right, Dan Bear. What about yourself? Um, I'm I'm also at a nine. I, I don't think it's perfect. I don't know that it's an all-time classic, but I think it's definitely one of the best of its year. Sure. Josh Parr? God, I feel like my reputation is just ruining movies for people. Um, I am going to give it a 7 out of 10. I, I like the movie. That is still a recommendation from me. It's not quite as high as where you guys are, but there's still enough in it that I recognize it that is successful for me to say it's a good movie that people should seek out. Okay, so uh, Children of Men did have an awards run. It premiered at the Venice International Film Festival in 2006. I, once again, think that it was a film that was ahead of its time, and I don't know if a lot of people in the awards uh, community really knew what to do with this movie. It also came out super late. Yeah, it was Christmas. It was like Christmas, yeah. 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 So I think it struggled a little bit. I, I remember critics groups were definitely on board with this film and it won quite a lot of stuff um, in terms of director wins for Quran, uh, nominations for best film. The constant presence throughout the entire season was Emmanuel Lebeski for cinematography. He, I think he swept the season, if my memory serves me correctly, in terms of um, I, he won BAFTA, he won ASC. ASC. Yeah. yeah, And I think he was heavily favored to win the Oscar that year. It was like one of those things where it was like, Manuel Lebeski will probably win the only thing uh, for Children of Men, but uh, they didn't go with him. They went with uh, Pan's Labyrinth instead, which was actually a shocker. Which, yeah. you know, I know that the cinematography in Children of Men is great and probably deserved to win, but man, Pan's Labyrinth is also incredible work too. Yeah. And sure. I, I, I can't be that mad that Lubezki didn't win for this because I also feel like the work in Pan's Labyrinth is also so great. And the fact that Lubezki would also end up winning later, it, it kind of feels like maybe the universe kind of actually had a plan for that after all. And uh, maybe sort of because he won out. three years in a freaking row. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's funny because I look back and I say to myself, you know, Lubezki should have won for this. He should have won for the Tree of Life. And it's like, how many Oscars are we going to give the damn guy at the end of the day? You know, <laughs> all the Oscars, Matt. Yeah, seriously. Uh, Children of Men also received uh, Oscar nominations for Best Film Editing and also for Best Writing Adapted Screenplay. Now, I'm sure Josh Parm has qualms with the uh, writing nomination. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wouldn't have put it there. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally That's understand that. It's like, what else would you put in Yeah, that? but I think for adaptation, I think it's a good one. I agree with that, yeah. So, you know, if it was Best Original Screenplay, then... Yeah, there might be issues, but adaptation, I think it, it did very well. Now, the thing that I kind of like just jump on a bit here is I look at uh, Best Director that year. And once again, I think that this is part of the reason why Gravity was like such an anointment for Quarrel because they were just like, yeah, we kind of missed the boat with Children mm -hmm. of Men that year. You know, um, and I look at that director lineup and if I, I totally would find a way to put Quaron in there. So you have Martin Scorsese for The Departed, who won, not taking that away from him. He's having that <laughs> completely. <laughs> uh, but Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari too for Babel, Clint Eastwood for Letters from Iwo Jima, Stephen Frears for The Queen, and Paul Greengrass for United 93. I easily would take out Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari too. I think I would easily take out Stephen Frears. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. 
it's not flashy work, but I don't want to discount like how well done the queen is though. It's mm. well done, but like it, like I, to me, like that's that movie. It's well done. It's fine. Fair. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would necessarily put Quran in a personal lineup for me and director, but I would also still agree that I think Inyari 2 and Freers are the weakest out of that group. And then, like I was saying before, how the hell did this movie not get a production design nomination? And I think it was because, remember, like, contemporary production design was also something that was not as fully embraced. And, you know, once again, this isn't quote-unquote contemporary. It is futuristic, but they leaned so far into it being contemporary that I think that that's part of the reason why it missed Mm -hmm. in the end. Yeah, I mean, this is a it's a weird year, and I love looking at the list of art direction because it was called art direction back then, not production design, and and realizing oh, Children of Men got one less Academy Award nomination than Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> Dead Man's Chest, <laughs> <laughs> or like The Good Shepherd. Like when was the last time you thought about that? <laughs> My God, The Good oh, Shepherd! God. Holy. Dear sweet Jesus. Uh, I would absolutely take that out and replace it with Children of Men. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, easily. (laughs) And then what would you guys do for sound editing, sound mixing? I would definitely put it in at least one. Mm. Mm, Yeah, I mean, it's good work. Um, It probably deserves to be there. I'm not quite as enthusiastic about the sound design as you guys are i think it's like i said it's good work i don't know if it's necessary get it gets to that point where i'm like yes it definitely deserved a nomination but you can probably like you know throw out blood diamond and put it in (laughs) there you know it's funny how there's like a four for four overlap with apocalypto Blood Diamond, Flags of Our Fathers, and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men's Chest, and the sound categories that year. And then the two films that didn't have overlap are ones that won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't think I would change. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting, too, because, like, for Best Picture, it, it obviously gets in from me. I, I I wonder, do you guys think that if it was the scale that we have now, do you think Children of Men would have gotten a Best Picture nomination? Oh, yeah. yeah I think. Yeah, 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 I think so. Okay. Yeah, I, I kind of figured as much. Man, that would be, like, that would be crazy. Imagine if we wake up on nomination morning and you realize, okay, Children of Men got a Best Picture nomination, but you'd be like, man, they didn't get Quran and Director, no Art Direction nomination, like... You know, it would just be one of those where it was like a half-assed thing, almost like um, – and I know like it didn't get a Best Picture nomination, but it, it, it feels like how I, I felt when I woke up and First Man only got, what, like three Oscar nominations? And they were like the, <laughs> the weirdest Oscar nominations that movie could have gotten. <laughs> uh, but Children of Men does at least would have had a, um editing and writing nomination to its name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although it's interesting, if you look at all the other nominations, it was probably like ninth. Maybe. You know, after, because you have Dreamgirls, which is the obvious sixth, um, and Pan's Labyrinth, which is seventh. And United 93. And Blood Diamond got a lot of nominations, too. Oh, God. For some reason. It, yeah, it genuinely did. Reason. This is actually a more complicated year than I think people probably think it is oh oh yeah i mean because then you also have like for example could have notes on a scandal or little children popped in there mm, yeah mm. Mm. maybe borat <laughs> i loved that i would have died 
Mm. Oh you God. can have that one. <laughs> Borat is destined to have that writing nomination. And even as in a year of 10, I think still have that outlier writing nomination. This is why I love the writer's branch, because they just do shit like that sometimes. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. And then the other nomination was for uh, film editing as well, which, you know, I go back and forth on this a little bit, not in terms of uh, Children of Men winning, but I go back and forth sometimes on The Departed's editing a little bit. Because there are some, like, glaring continuity errors in that yeah. film that yeah, really distract me. I don't love that movie. Yeah, and there's also, like, very flashy... Ed- that movie's just, like, edited, like... Like, it's a movie with the most editing, for sure. Mm. Um, but I don't know. Like, to this day, I, I kind of go back and forth a little bit. And I think I would have leaned more towards United 93 winning film editing, if I'm being completely honest with you guys. Yeah, United 93 is, I think, the clear winner in that category. Yeah, I, I do think that The Departed, I mean, being the Best Picture winner helped. Being Thelma, uh, having it her edit the movie also helped. I I do agree that there are some very weird decisions made within the editing of that film. Yeah. But it also is, like, just so energetic in the editing. Like, there's also just sequences that are so lively because of the editing that it kind of makes up for the the – glaring errors in terms of continuity that you kind of just forget about it and so I, I go back and forth between the departed and united 93 as well and i think united 93 probably technically is better but so much of what you love about the departed is also due to <laughs> things of how those sequences are edited too like departed is like honestly a messy movie from a filmmaking standpoint so messy but we love it though regardless it's so weird it's so fun yeah yeah and and it never was meant to be an oscar movie it was just meant to be a commercial you know mob you know crime drama movie and it's like so just so bizarre it's like you look at marty scorsese's filmography and go really (laughs) that's the one and you know the fact that it also won like uh, I look back and I think to myself like the fact that it won like adapted screenplay and it's like it's clear why it won right because so many of the one liners in that are just so outrageous to the point that like it's such a it's just a wild movie it's it's a crazy movie it's one of the most unique best picture winners I think we have ever seen and probably ever will see because it doesn't have like that mature gravitas that something like the godfather has it just feels so much more juvenile and sporadic <laughs> and just like i said messy all around but goddamn, is it so entertaining <laughs> yeah <laughs> such a weird year for the oscars i mean that's the thing that 2006 in general was just so spread out that it was hard for anything to like latch onto a narrative and say yes this clearly is going to win and it makes sense that it's going to win yeah I mean, this year is why we get to call Mark Wahlberg an Oscar nominee. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another, once again, bizarre Oscar it's nomination for The Departed. <laughs> oh, my God. We got to review The Departed at some point. <laughs> There's so much to talk about there. <laughs> I am ready to talk about how much I don't like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I will be the Josh Parham of that podcast. <laughs> Well, we'll come back to this uh, some other time. Uh, in the meantime, Dan Bear, tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. 
Bianca. You can find me hoarding toilet paper. I mean, sorry, you can find me uh, <laughs> over at the film B. I don't have any toilet paper. Please don't come to my house. <laughs> Josh Parham. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Children of Men here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Or will we? Wow. <laughs> no. Bleak. I'm, what can I say? It's a very bleak time at the moment. I, 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 I couldn't find any eggs at the supermarket. No oh, eggs. No. As, as why? Why are all the eggs gone? <laughs> why is the rum gone? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it was pretty much like me just walking around a supermarket going, eggs, eggs, eggs. <laughs> <laughs> what? there's a bit of irony here considering we just reviewed children and men about infertility yeah <laughs> going around asking about eggs yeah <laughs> i mean it's not like we're, it's a bird flu you know you know all the chickens are still producing eggs where have they gone i want to know